I'd like to say first that you may not realize how important a meeting like this is to some of us. I've been doing this now for 20 years, wherever I'm invited. Sometimes it seems like uh, when we visit some of the little churches around the country, it seems like there's a sleepy attitude and you wonder if anything will ever happen. And will uh, and my wife often asks me, will we really be the generation that will actually see Jesus come or will it have to pass to another generation? Uh, you really wonder sometimes, is it uh, a hopeless task? And I, if I were to characterize the 90s, I would say that we were just kind of going along and doing the duty that the Lord called us to do and wondering what would happen in the future. When the last, well, I'd say since about 2000, all of a sudden there has been a change, and it has largely been in this age group. This was not happening in the late 80s and early 90s. This has been a recent phenomenon to have a group like this right here to have GYC all over the country, young people getting excited about what Adventism is really about, the real fundamental values, not the peripheral glitz and glamour of what we are being told is Adventism, but the foundation stones of Adventism, to see young people organizing those meetings, pulling them together, having, what what we have, 2,000 at the last one at, uh, at Sacramento? Uh, and, uh, and then the regional conferences. I've spoken at two regional conferences, one up near Seattle, one down near uh, uh, Atlanta, Georgia. We will be going to New York to speak at a youth conference up in that area. Regional conferences all around the country. This is a new time. This has not happened in my lifetime. And you just don't know, because you're right in the middle of it right now, you just don't know how unusual this is for some of us who have been around a while to see this phenomenon breaking loose in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now maybe I can have a little more courage that this could be the generation and this could be the time. Thank you. All right, a couple of announcements now. Number one, two meetings this afternoon as announced, little break in between. After the second meeting, we will take a little time for question and discussion. If you want to stay by and talk a little bit, we'll have a little time for that after the second meeting. And we'll probably go to sundown or somewhere around then if you want to. After sundown now, if you would like to take a look at the materials we have with us, we have a number of books and some tapes. The materials for this weekend are in three formats. They're on audio tape. They're in, in two different formats, uh, extended much more than this and also this size. And they're in videotape and they're in book written form. So there are various ways to access this if you want to continue to study this on your own. Those will be available after sundown on a table back there somewhere, so you will be able to look at it uh, if you wish. Also, uh, I bring with me little pamphlets and booklets, small little things that if you would like to take something home with you from today, all you need to do is just come up and ask me at any time that's convenient for you, and I'll be delighted to share a small item or two with you to take home. And lastly, if you want to pursue these materials more in detail, this material is not on my website because it is available in these other three formats, but more in-depth materials on what is really going on, on in the gospel and other issues in the Seventh-day Adventist Church is available on my website. 
That is easy to access if you spell my name right. DennisPreby.com is my website. And you're welcome to browse around and see what you can find. It is not an amazing facts type of website with all sorts of interesting things to do and click on and interact and all that. This is a study website. And you're welcome to, uh, to, uh, to, to log on if you want to uh, dig into some of the cutting edge things that are in the ad going on in the Adventist church today. All right, I think we're ready. Does everybody have an outline that want one? Raise your hand if you got missed. Here's one that got missed up here. Let's make sure. Where is, where is one or two more? Have we run out? Okay, share if we can. That'll help. Anyone else that uh, would like to look on? All right. Would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 2? By the way, the reason for this study is not to solve the nature of Christ, even though that's the title of the outline. The reason for this study is to understand how Christ's life can enable us to understand how to be righteous by faith. That's the only reason, to understand how we can experience what he showed, how he showed the way. Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. May I suggest that if there were one verse I would choose out of the entire Bible to summarize everything I want to say this afternoon, this is it. We need the mind of Christ. Not just need it, we desperately need it. If we could have the mind of Christ to think like he thought, to make decisions like he made decisions, it would cut short a thousand problems that we have if we could think in the way he thought. And this text says that can happen. We need to pray on this text. We need to spend time with this text, putting this text before the Lord and praying for this mind to be in us so that we can have his spirit and his attitudes. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Now there is the crucial text. Every knee. And the next verse says that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is this thing that we call the great controversy? It, of course, is the ultimate battle of the universe in which Satan challenges God, he challenges Christ, he challenges God's way and his government, and it is God's way of solving this problem, sending Christ down to this earth to reveal the character of God to the point where finally every being that has ever lived will acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That will be a day. I'm waiting for the day when Satan himself will walk down before the sight of all who have ever lived on this earth assembled at one time, will get on his knees voluntarily, and will say in the presence of everyone, your way is right, my way doesn't work, the most merciful thing you can do for me is to end my existence. When the universe sees that, it'll be a safe place to live in once again. We will have peace. But of course, 
that's over a thousand years in our future. This is a long, protracted process. It's taken almost, or maybe more than, 6,000 years. It is yet a thousand years to go before final decisions will have been made on God's way of governing, because we will spend some time asking God the same questions that the angels are asking God today about his decisions regarding who's saved and why, and will they be safe for all eternity. We want the day when every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now let's go back to verse 7. The King James says he made himself of no reputation. The Greek is actually simpler. It says he emptied himself. And that's the basis for my question of what did Christ empty himself? Let's take a quick run through. The first is omnipotence. John chapter 5 verse 30. Jesus makes some very strange statements. Here is one of them. You wouldn't expect Jesus to say this. I can of mine own self do nothing. Now what is that? Who's talking here? Who is Jesus? What is his name in the Old Testament? Jehovah or Yahweh. Does Yahweh ever say in any verse you can find in the Old Testament, I can of mine own self do nothing? That's the text you would pay a lot of money to find, just like that missing Sunday text, right? It doesn't exist. So right here, Jesus is saying something totally opposite than he ever said as Yahweh. I can of mine own self do nothing. And then he says something even stranger. He says, I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Now what sense does that make? Wouldn't Jesus better say, I seek my own will and the will of my Father because they're both the same? I'd expect Jesus to say that, but he says the opposite. I do not seek my own will, but instead of that, I seek the will of my Father. Strange statements made by Jesus. Well, let's take the first one first. I can of mine own self do nothing. Now, this outline, you notice, is a little thicker than the one this morning. There are more Ellen White statements for your study. I won't be reading them all. If you'll notice, there is an outline number and letter on each part of the outline. And if you look at the Ellen White statements, you will find the same outline number and letter. Uh, so you know which statements always go with which parts of the outline, obviously with the very first one. Jesus was in the little boat with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, and they were sure it was all over for them. He rested not in the possession of almighty power. It was not as the master of earth and sea that he reposed in quiet. That power he had laid down, and he says, I can of mine own self do nothing. He trusted in the Father's might. It was in faith, faith in God's love and care that Jesus rested, and the power of that word which stilled the storm was the power of God. What power did Jesus use when he was on earth? And we could read a number of others. He used his Father's power. He did not use his own power. He laid that down. Why? How much power do you and I have? Can we still seize? Can God work through us to do his mighty works? So Jesus came to live as a human being must live. He did not come to show what a God could do. He came to show what a human being could do in surrender to God, in dependence on God. 
And so Jesus came to show what a human being's access to God could be. So that's the first point. Jesus lays aside his omnipotence. Second point is his memory. We won't even take time to look up 252 because you know that text. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. Now, how did Jesus increase in wisdom? How do you increase in wisdom? You don't know much, and you learn a little more, hopefully every day. Again, notice the Ellen White statements here, section 1b. The very words which he himself had spoken to Moses for Israel, he was now taught at his mother's knee. He gained knowledge as we may do. Yahweh had written the Ten Commandments on the tables of stone. Yahweh had spoken them from Sinai. And now Yahweh, turned into Jesus, has to go to his mother and say, why do we keep the seventh day Sabbath? Why is it sundown to sundown? You know, all the questions you ask somewhere along the line. Why do we do this? Why don't we do that? And he had to learn what he himself had decreed. That's the Jesus who comes to this earth. He who had made all things studied the lessons which his own hand had written in earth and sea and sky. Can you imagine the little boy Jesus running in after a rainstorm, which we were supposed to have this afternoon, weren't we? I heard it was going to rain about five hours today. Jesus coming in after a rainstorm and saying, Mommy, what is that bright thing in the sky with all different colors? And his mother would tell him about the rainbow that Yahweh had placed in the sky. That's the Jesus who came to this earth. When he was 12 years of age, his, his parents took him to the temple for the very first time. And for the first time in his life, he saw a lamb being sacrificed by the priests. And then the next sentence, the mystery of his mission was opening to the Savior. Now that's very important. How did Jesus know what his mission was? How did Jesus know that he was sent here to be the sacrifice for mankind? How did Jesus know that he was the Messiah who was to die? Now, his mother could tell him quite a bit that he was born in a special way, that he was the Son of God. But how did Jesus know that he would die for the sins of the world? Did the rabbis teach him that? Did his mother teach him that? She had no idea that's what his mission was. So how did Jesus find out? Twelve-year-old boy, watching something that he'd never seen before in his life, remembering a text that he had read in the book of Isaiah. Do you remember what it might have been? A lamb led to the slaughter. And the Holy Spirit coming down upon that 12-year-old mind and saying, that's what you were sent here to do. That's how Jesus learned what his mission was. Study of God's Word, guidance of the Holy Spirit, openness to God's leading. Jesus did not know what his mission was at age 10 or at age 11. But at age 12, God chose to use this method to impress upon that young mind what he was sent on earth to do. And then he said, don't you know that I'm supposed to be about my father's business? That's when he learned that he was on an errand for the father. And he knew specifically what that errand was. So what does that tell us about Jesus? How did Jesus know? didn't know by memory. He didn't know by knowledge. He knew by trusting God's word through his written word and his guidance through the Holy Spirit. How do we learn? Same way. 
Isn't that exactly how we learn? So Jesus is learning exactly as we, he must learn. And that means that Jesus lived his entire life by faith. Do you have to exercise a little bit of faith? Now be honest. How many of you know that there is a God? Have you talked to him personally, seen him face to face, walked in his presence, seen his glory? I've seen nothing. I have seen nothing like the Shekinah that the Israelites saw. I certainly haven't seen what Moses saw. I am trusting that Moses is telling us the truth. How about you? I am tr trusting that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are telling us the truth about one who came down to this earth. How about you? You know, there's one or two references in history about a Jesus who was killed by Pontius Pilate. End of discussion. You're not going to learn about Jesus in the history books. You have to have some faith, don't you? That he was really who he claimed to be. And you have to have some faith that there's going to be a new earth, don't you? Because no one has seen that either. We live our entire lives, everything that means anything, by faith based on evidence. Faith based on evidence. Not memory, not knowledge of the future, faith based on evidence. How did Jesus live his entire life? Faith based on evidence. That's how Jesus went to the cross, my friends. He didn't go to the cross because of some divine special knowledge up here. He went to the cross by faith in what God had said in the Old Testament and now through the Holy Spirit. By faith. Again, as some have said, he was either God or the greatest fool that has ever lived. He was not just a normal man because he acted by faith in what God had said. Well, all right, that's memory. He didn't have it. What about foreknowledge? Turn with me to Mark 13, 32. Mark 13, 32. Now, Jesus has spent an entire chapter here describing events that would take place between, between his first and second comings. And he has now come to the end of the story in verse 32. But of that day... And that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Wow, what did we just hear him say there? I don't know when I'm coming back. That's what he just said. How does that make any sense? Didn't he, uh, didn't he prophesy all these things in this chapter about the future? And now he doesn't know when he's coming back? Well, how does a prophet know what a prophet knows? what God tells him. And that's the end of the prophet's knowledge. Prophets aren't specially gifted people. They just have a pipeline, a channel. And so Jesus has the same channel of information. What the Father tells him, he knows. What the Father does not tell him, he does not know. And he says so. He's honest with us. He simply says, I wasn't given that information. And he's content with that notice. Sometimes we want to know more than what God tells us, don't we? Turn again to the section 1C. Before he came to earth, the plan lay out before him, perfect in all its detail. But as he walked among men, he was guided step by step by the Father's will. See, as Yahweh, he saw it all. As Jesus, he saw nothing. Christ, in his life on earth, made no plans for himself. He accepted God's plans for him, and day by day, day by day, the Father unfolded his plans. Can that be true for us? Can he show us the way day by day? We don't need to know two weeks or a year in advance. We need to know day by day if we're willing to accept that. 
And then the next paragraph is one of the most profound that I have ever read. Jesus is on the cross. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave, a conqueror, or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. Didn't Jesus say, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up? Didn't he believe that? Why, of course he believed it. He told his disciples, I'm going to have to leave you, but I will come again. He was very clear on that. So what has happened here? Think about what happened from G- as Jesus and his disciples were walking from the upper room, the Last Supper, to the Garden of Gethsemane. At least three times, Jesus stumbles and would have fallen to the ground if his disciples had not held him quickly and kept him upright. What's going on here? This is the carpenter Jesus who walked many, many miles. What's happening to him? All of a sudden, something is happening that has never happened before in his whole experience, way back in eternity. All of a sudden, he can't see his father's face. Why? Sin. Whose sin? Yours and mine. Our rebellion is now coming down upon his shoulders, and rebellion always separates from the life-giver principle. Rebellion always separates from God. Sin forms a barrier. And Jesus was going through that barrier experience. Now, he couldn't feel his Father's presence. He had never known that feeling before. He couldn't see his Father's face. He couldn't hear his Father's voice. His prayer seemed to hit off a brick wall. There was no contact. His disciples were all back there sleeping. Jesus was all alone in the universe as far as he could tell. And he was going through what you and I hopefully will never have to go through. What is that called? The second death experience. There is no coming back from that experience. That's final destruction. And Jesus was going into that endless pit of nothingness in which there is no hope out the other side. And the devil is whispering in his ear, you have taken this voluntarily upon yourself. You made the choice back in the Garden of Eden. You stepped in and bravely said, I will take the punishment upon myself. Well, here it is, Jesus. How does it feel? You'll never see your father's face again. You are eternally cut off from the father. You will have ne- you, a sinner can never see the father because the father is holy and pure. And those words make a great deal of sense to Jesus hanging on the cross. And you know what he cried out in one case. My God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus is saying something like this during those hours on the cross. Father, I'm here because you sent me here. But right now, you're a million miles away. I can't sense your presence. I can't hear your voice. Right now, I am cut off from you, and I may be eternally cut off from you. I may never see your face again. Father, if that is your will, if that will vindicate your name, if that will destroy Satan in the great controversy, then your will be done. Jesus is willing to go into non-existence if that is necessary for my salvation and for God's vindication. That's what we're reading in this statement. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror. You see, hope is an emotion. It's a feeling. 
I'm not talking about faith here. Faith is struggling with feeling right now. And Jesus' feeling is, it's over, it's done, it's hopeless, and I may never come out of this experience. And Jesus is willing to do that if God can win the great controversy. There's a song in the book of Revelation that the people, hopefully we, in the end time will learn the words of. It's called the Song of Moses and the Lamb. Remember Moses? God said, well, I'll start all over with you. We'll get this thing right. And Moses said, if you destroy this people in the wilderness and the heathen nations laugh at the God who can't even take care of his own people and your name is dishonored, then blot my name out of what? The book of life. The book that will get us into heaven. The book of eternal life. In other words, Moses is saying, I would rather go into non-existence than your name be dishonored. That's what Moses is saying. And Jesus is saying the same thing. If necessary, I will go into non-existence if that will vindicate your name. May I suggest that we are asking the wrong question these days? The wrong question is a good question at the wrong time. What's a good question? Do I have the assurance of salvation? Will I be saved? Good question. We're being told that that is the most important question that each one of us need to know about. Do we have the assurance of salvation? We, bring, we are being told that that is the primary reason for our day-to-day -day existence, is to have that assurance. Is that the most important question? Will I make it to heaven? Will I be rid of the troubles and the trials of this life? Will I be able to walk the streets of glass? Will I be able to enjoy happiness and peace forevermore? Is that the most important question? I don't think so. I don't think so. The most important question, how much longer will God have to stand back and wait and let Satan continue to wreak havoc on this planet to destroy babies because they can't get enough food to fill their stomachs to bring kids into homes where they are abused mentally and physically by their own parents, how much longer will God have to tolerate that on this earth? How much longer will he have to let Satan run freely on this earth as the prince of this world until his name is vindicated, until all charges against him are proved to be false, until Satan is discredited as the biggest liar in the universe, and how could he be discredited? By those who have chosen to take his name, saying, God's way is right. I will serve him no matter what happens to me. I will do right because God is right, and I love him, and I want his will to be done, even if I never make it into heaven myself. I want Satan to be off this planet. I want Satan to be cut down. I want him to be cast into the bottomless pit now. Whether or not I get to heaven... I want that to happen. So here's the real question for why we do and say things. We want to say the right things, do the right things, act the right way, and think the right way, not so we can have a place in heaven, but so that God's way can be vindicated and Satan can be defeated. That's what we need to be asking about everything we say and do. Is what I am saying at this moment vindicating God or is it vindicating Satan? It is one or the other. There are no neutral areas. 
Everything we do and say is either telling the truth about God's way or telling the truth about Satan's way. When we sin, knowingly sin, knowingly rebel against God, we are agreeing with Satan that God's law is too hard, it's unfair, it is too rigid, and we can't live with it. When Jesus said, turn the other cheek and love your enemy, we're saying, that's not fair. I have my rights, I will not be walked upon. Satan, you're right, God's wrong. Whenever we rebel against God, we are casting a vote for Satan to continue his work on this earth. That's why we should stop sinning. Not so that we can squeak into heaven somehow. The real question for us should be, is what I am saying and doing vindicating my Father in heaven? That's the song of Moses and the Lamb. When we learn the words to that song... I don't think the latter rain is going to be very hard, far behind. What do you think? Because then God can trust us with the Holy Spirit's power. Right now, wouldn't we be kind of, well, I won more souls than you did yesterday. I had more baptisms. Did you see all the baptisms I had? I spoke in two tongues yesterday. I healed three people yesterday. Did you? Can you imagine that? You see why God can't trust us with a lot of power right now? We're still trying to up, be up, one up on someone else. Beat the other person out. When we have lost all this sense of pride and of self, and we are willing to be nothing so God can be everything, then the Holy Spirit can be given to us and he won't be abused by what we do and say. That's the song of Moses and the Lamb. And we need to learn it, don't we? Well, at least you can see that Jesus does not have foreknowledge, right? He doesn't see through the portals of the tomb. Now back to the outline. Omnipresence and glory. I'm going to let you read the statements there for yourself. Five things that he empties himself of, his power, his memory, his knowledge of the future, his omnipresence, and his glory. He does not bring those things with him down to this earth. Now, why is all that important? Well, there's a text in James that says, God cannot be tempted with evil. How can you tempt God? Temptation is deception. Here, you try this fruit. Look what it'll do for you. Would that work with God? How could God be deceived? God knows every possible end to every possible beginning. So you can't fool God, and that's what temptation is. It's trying to fool you, make you think something is better than it really is. Have you learned that? That what is so glamorous and exciting turns to ashes very quickly? Deception. Deception. That's Satan's tool for, for temptation. Well, how can God be deceived? Impossible. Now the question. If Jesus was functioning with the mind of God, if his mind was the same as Yahweh, how could Satan deceive Jesus? God cannot be tempted. God cannot be deceived. And, of course, God cannot sin. See? So if Jesus is functioning with the mind of God... There's no temptation. You know what the incarnation is all about then? If this is true, if Jesus has the mind of God all the time during his life on earth, this is the greatest play ever written. It was scripted up in heaven. The actors were assigned their parts. Jesus learned his lines. As Yahweh, of course he could learn all his lines. He came down to this earth. He went through the stage directions. He did exactly what was, what was specified. He spoke the right words at the right time. He did everything that the script demanded, and when the play was over, he went back to heaven and the audience applauded. 
Does an actor take a risk in a play? The only risk he has is forgetting his lines. That's about it. If there is a gun pointed at the actor, is he afraid of being shot? It's blanks. He knows it is. It's in the play. It's written in. And he'll just act like he's shot. All right? There's no risk in a play. It is just following the script. You know it ahead of time and you follow it. Well, that's what the incarnation turns out to be if Jesus is functioning with the mind of God because there's no risk. There is no uncertainty. He knows exactly what will happen. He knows that when they do all these bad things to him, he will come out of the grave, no problem at all. He doesn't go through the experience we just read, nothing like that. He doesn't fear the future. Everything is, is all settled. It's cut and dried, and he just walks through the play. That's the Christ that most Christians believe in. What I have just been sharing with you in the last 15 minutes is believed by hardly any Christians on this planet. A Christ who emptied himself. A Christ who did not... Ask a Christian on the street, how did Jesus do his great miracles? How did he raise Lazarus from the dead? How did he still the sea? How did he heal the lepers? And what will their answer be? Because he was God. God is all-powerful. Satan is defeated in the presence of God. Ask that same Christian, how did Jesus do, overcome sin? Why did he not sin for over 30 years? And what will that Christian's answer be? Because he was God. Because he was God. That's the Christ that most Christians come to worship on every Sunday morning. And maybe even on some Sabbath mornings. It's possible. That's the Christ. It's a paper Christ. It's a Christ that was written up by theologians who didn't understand any of the things we've been talking about in the last few minutes, that Christ emptied himself of all these powers. This is the Christ that does not take a risk. I even found to my amazement, I talked to you a little bit about my experience last night, I found to my amazement that my colleague Desmond Ford, who portrayed that other gospel so clearly at Pacific Union College, I only found it out in later years, just a few years ago, that he also believes that Christ took no risk in the great controversy. He could not have sinned. That is the dominant view of evangelical theology today. That is the view of the Christian right. That is the view of the Christian conservatives of today. Christ did not risk anything because he was God. Do you see the difference between that Christ and the Christ that we have just been talking about? The one who risked everything? The one who felt like he was going into nothingness? The one who could have sinned at any moment? And the whole universe would have been destroyed. Remember that. We say, well, it would have just been our planet. What if Satan had won on our planet? Do you think that message would have stayed localized to this planet? Or would the word have gone out through world after world after world that God couldn't prove Satan wrong, Satan defeated God? The universe would have come to nothing if Christ would have failed. And Christ, according to what we have just read, had no more advantage than we have in our daily walk with the Lord. Faith, trust, surrender, and dependence. That's all he had. He did not have these powers. And then there's another thing. Oh, by the way, just one little thing that helps to understand this. Remember the day that Satan walked down before Jesus in that wilderness of temptation? 
How did Satan look when Satan came down before Jesus? Bright angel, right? He came up to Jesus and he said, I have been sent from the Father. I have been sent to end your fast. You have accomplished the purpose. And then he stops mid-sentence. And I imagine he walked all the way around Jesus and looked him up and down and said, I've made a terrible mistake. I was sent to find the Son of God. That's obviously not you. You are not the Son of God. Look at you. You're haggard. You've been, you're emaciated. You're in terrible shape. You are not the Son of God. Well, if you think you are, see that stone down there? Pick it up and turn it into food. That will be the proof to you and me that you are who you claim to be. That was the temptation. Now, why did Satan think he could pull that one off? Here's a question now. You have to think this one through. If Satan knew that Jesus knew that Satan was hiding under the robes of the angel, would Satan have tried that little trick? Is Satan fairly smart? Let me say that again. If Satan knew that Jesus knew that it was Satan hiding under the robes of the angel, would he have tried to fool Jesus that way? But if Satan knew that Jesus did not know that it was Satan, but that he could fool Jesus into thinking he was an angel, would it make some sense to try it? Just trick Jesus once. That's all it would take. Trip him up before he thought. He was tired. He was hungry. He was stressed out. Just trip him up. He didn't have to go through a long, logical argument. Just fool him while he wasn't thinking right. See? That was Satan's plan. Satan knew that Jesus emptied himself. He knew more than most Christians know about Jesus. Satan knew that Jesus had emptied himself. And therefore, he says, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Only after that did he try the other temptations of presumption and escaping the cross. He was trying to fool Jesus on this one. How did Jesus recognize Satan? The words that came out of his mouth. Guess how we'll be able to recognize falsehood, even Satan himself. Not by sight, but by evidence. Statements, words. Okay, now there's another thing. Here I am down in the mud of sin. I am just struggling down here. I'm not feeling too good about myself. I feel guilty half the time. And here is this Jesus, holy and sinless, high on a pillar, way above me. Is it easy to talk to a holy, sinless being when you're feeling rotten and guilty? Not so easy, is it? So Christians in past centuries came up with a solution. Why, we'll talk to Mary. Mary understands Jesus, and Mary understands us. So Mary can intercede with Jesus for us. Well, that worked for a little while. But then all of a sudden, that pillar that Mary was on started to rise. Have you noticed? All of a sudden, she was not born in the way you and I are born. She had an immaculate conception. Didn't inherit any of our sinful nature. And then when she died, she was taken bodily to heaven. Not just in spirit form. Physically, bodily to heaven. Where today, she sits at the right hand of Jesus, assisting him in his work of redeeming mankind. Co-redeemer with Jesus Christ. Wow, has that pillar risen? And here I am, still down here in the mud of sin, feeling bad about myself. Now, how, am I, how can I even talk to her? She is so holy and high and lifted up. So we came up with a solution. Can you guess? St. Christopher, St. Patrick, St. Jude, St. Teresa, and a hundred other saints. What's good about them? They started down here in the mud with us. And then they came to live holy lives. They understand what we're going through. That's the point, isn't it? 
They understand me. They know because they've been here. I can pray to them. Then they will pray to Mary for me. Then Mary will take my prayers to Jesus. And Jesus will take my prayers to the Father. And if I'm really lucky, I'll get an answer back here. Do you see what has happened? We need someone who can feel our feelings. We desperately need someone who can understand what we're going through. Now, what does the Bible say? Do we need Mary and do we need the saints for that to be accomplished? Who do we need? Does he understand? Has he been down in the mud with us? Has he walked through the same temptations? If I'm feeling discouraged, does he ever come to that feeling where he was discouraged? Can I talk to him frankly and openly? See, there is the gospel. We don't have to go through saints, Mary, priests, ministers, or rabbis. We go directly to Jesus Christ. That's the Christ of the Bible. Because he understands everything that I'm going through. And I can take everything I'm feeling to him because he has felt all those feelings before me. Whether I'm 12 or 20 or whatever. He has felt what I feel. That's the Jesus of the Bible. That's the Christ hardly any Christians have ever heard of. Really, seriously. The most important good news that you can share with your friends and your relatives is one question. The question is not, do you know which day is the Sabbath? The question is, do you know my friend Jesus? Don't make the mistake that I did as a young pastor of thinking that I really didn't have to spend much time on that particular Bible study, who Jesus is, because my, these were all Christians. They knew who Jesus was. Don't make that mistake. Most of your Christian friends haven't a clue about who Jesus was. So you need to ask them a question. It's a very simple question. Do you know my friend Jesus? Let me tell you about the Jesus I've come to know. They'll listen. They might not listen if you start on the Sabbath, but they'll listen if you, really, if, if you talk to them about your friend who has helped you through this problem that you're going through right now. They'll listen. You can tell them about your friend, Jesus. That's the best good news that we have in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. That's why we spent this time asking our, the question of what did Christ empty himself? It tells us about a Christ that hardly any Christians have ever heard of. All right, now, what nature did he take? There's where we hit the fan in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. All sorts of controversies about what nature he actually took. And so, I have said, to my detriment in many circles, fallen human nature. I guarantee that makes me a lot less popular than otherwise might be. Now, why do I believe it? Why should I spend any time on that? Why can't we just let that one slide? That's something that isn't so important, is it? Well, let's find out. Turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 3. This is probably one of the most important uh, statements uh, on this subject. Much has been written on this verse. Romans 8, 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. 
Those are the words now. In the likeness of sinful flesh. And by the way, when you read flesh in the New Testament, does it mean what we have in our bones? Mm -mm. It means our whole fallen nature. Everything about us as a result of the fall. Sinful flesh means fallen nature. Here it says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. What does likeness mean? How can we be sure? That's where the arguments really raise. Turn to Philippians chapter 2 where we started. Philippians chapter 2 verse 7, this time looking at the last part of this verse. Philippians 2 7. He took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Likeness, same word in Greek and English. Likeness, likeness of men. What does that mean? Likeness of men. Let me take you back to the first century to a group of Christians who had come out of paganism. They had come out under Peter or Paul's preaching and they brought a little baggage with them out of paganism. You know, it's easy to do. A little of your former beliefs. Their former belief was that the body and the spirit are two opposite things. The body is evil and the spirit is good. If you want to check that out, check modern paganism. It's the New Age movement. Read a book or two by Shirley MacLaine. Did she start uh, her life as a little baby named Shirley MacLaine? Why, of course not. She had many lives before that, many different bodies that she took, and her spirit will go on into many bodies in the future. The spirit is good and the body is evil. It's an encumbrance. You get rid of it as soon as you can. Spirit versus body. And these Christians believed that. And they came out of their background with that little belief hanging on. And now they came to hear about Jesus Christ, who was God, who is pure spirit, come down to this earth in the form of men. And all of a sudden their hands say, no, that can't be. That would make Jesus a sinner if he took a physical body. And so they came up with a solution. They took this text and they said Jesus was made in the likeness of a human being. He looked like a human being. He talked like a human being. He actually ate food like a human being. But he was never flesh and blood at all. He was always pure spirit, 100% spirit with the illusion of a body. That's what they believe. If you want to check them out, their names are Docetists, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-T. And they were very influential in the early Christian church. You want to know how much? Turn to 1 John chapter 4. John lived about 30, 40 years longer than Paul did, and John had to deal with this very situation. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, John has some docetus in his church, and look what he says. Beloved, believe not every spirit, spirit notice, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. These docetists were all talking about spirit. And the spirit is good. And here is the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. 
John is hitting this as hard as it can possibly be hit. He's got them in his congregation. And he is saying they are speaking the words of Antichrist. What are they saying? When Jesus came down to this earth, he did not take flesh and blood. He only had the illusion of a body. Well, what does that do to the incarnation? That's about the same as making it a play, having no relevance at all to us if he's not human like we are. And G John saw that clearly. Do you have to carry a flag saying, I hate Jesus to speak the words of Antichrist? No, it's easier than that. An example. Do you remember one day that Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to leave you. His disciples knew what he meant. I'm going to die. And what does Peter say back to him? Not so, Lord. No, no. Now, why is Peter contradicting Jesus again? Why does he do that? Well, in Peter's mind, Jesus is saying something really bad. You see, in Peter's mind, the Messiah does not die. The Messiah conquers. He's not killed. How can you tell the difference between false messiahs and the true messiah? There were a bunch of false ones around. The false ones all got killed off. That's how you told the difference. And Peter was hearing Jesus say, I am a false Messiah. That's why Jesus, Peter uh, spoke up. Not so, Lord. And what did Jesus say back to Peter? Get the opinion. I mean, who? Satan? Come on. Is Peter Satan? Does Peter want to be Satan's voice? But is Peter unwittingly arguing Satan's case for him. Peter's premise, the Messiah can't die. Defending the Messiah based on a false premise does what? You speak the words of Satan unwittingly. You argue Satan's case without knowing it. That's how you become the voice of Antichrist. False premise. Proving God right. Proving Christ right. Speaking the words of Antichrist. False premises. Watch them. They are deadly. What's a false premise? Something you have taken for granted without checking it out, like the doctrine of sin. What is sin? You've all heard, we're born sinners. Check it out. If it's a false premise, you might be in danger of speaking some words of Antichrist without even knowing it. These docetists, what was their false premise? To have a body makes one a sinner. Now they argue, Jesus must be sinless, so he can't have a body. Perfect sense, right? John says that's Antichrist. Here is my caution, and I'll let you think this one through for yourself. Is there much difference between a body making one a sinner and a fallen nature making one a sinner? Can you do much about either one? Do you have much to say about either one? Or are both accidents of birth? If a body makes one a sinner, well, then you can't help but being a sinner. If a fallen nature makes one a sinner, then you can't help but being a sinner. So if you're a sinner by accident of birth, you have no control over the subject or responsibility in the matter. You're not responsible for sin. God is. God could have stopped the whole process some way or other. So is it possible, is it possible that we have a false premise going that will lead us to speak words of Antichrist like Peter did and like the Docetus did in the first century? Is that possible? I think that here we're getting to the seriousness of the subject we are dealing with. 
This is not just a matter to, well, we'll let the scholars take care of it because we don't want to be bothered. This is the Christ we're talking about who lived and died for us. Do we dare be complacent on a subject on which the words of Antichrist are a possibility? Well, back to our uh, subject here. What is the clear teaching of Philippians 2.7? Jesus was made in the likeness of men. Was it a look-alike man he, took, he became? Was it a seeming man he became? Or was he actually flesh and blood? No question, right? Likeness means real. Likeness means actual. Likeness means the real thing. What does the likeness of sinful flesh mean then? The likeness of fallen nature. Could it mean the real thing? Likeness, real, actual, the same. And by the way, in Philippians 2.7, when it says the form of a servant, that's very, um, what shall we say, a sanitized language. The Greek language is much more graphic. Servant is not servant. Can you guess what servant is? Slave. Slave. It says that Jesus took the form of a slave. Simple question. Is Adam created in the image of God a slave in any way, shape, or form? Does he, ta does he have a slave form? But Adam, after he sins, after he falls, and now has within him a fallen nature, is that a slave form? See? Jesus took the form of a slave. Some very compelling evidence, in my opinion, right here in the Bible itself. And we haven't even read Hebrews 2. You can read that later on if you wish. Now we're going to go to some of the Spirit of Prophecy statements. If you would look at the first page once again, down near the bottom of the first page where you see Desire of Ages, page 49. It would have been an almost infinite humiliation for the Son of God to take man's nature even when Adam stood in his innocence in Eden, but Jesus accepted humanity when the race had been weakened by 4,000 years of sin. Now this phrase, like every child of Adam. Can we substitute a word there? Like you and like me. He accepted the results of the working of the great law of heredity. What these results were is shown in the history of his earthly ancestors. Who's that? Why, there's David, and there's Rahab, and there's Manasseh. They're not such a good lot. He came with such a heredity. Notice, he didn't come with their character, he came with their heredity. He accepted the normal working of heredity. No immaculate conception here, no exemptions here. He came with normal heredity. Every human being's heredity. You know why this is such a repulsive thought to many Christians? Look at the next paragraph. Look at heredity. Both parents transmit their own characteristics, mental and physical, their dispositions and appetites to their children. Was Jesus born with those dispositions and appetites? How could that be? That would make him a sinner. Look at page 2. Second paragraph on page 2. He, the Father, transmits irritable tempers, polluted blood, enfeebled intellects, and weak morals to his children. That's an ugly picture. Jesus couldn't have inherited that. That would have tainted him. That would have contaminated him. That's the argument. And you say, well, Jesus didn't have a father. And did Mary have a father? Did Mary's father have a father? Did heredity work through Mary? That's the question. 
Did those things pass on? Look at the next one. Parents may have transmitted to children tendencies to appetite and passion. Tendencies. Do you know why we spent so much time this morning on the issue of temptation and sin? Because of this issue right here. What is a tendency to appetite and passion? Temptation or sin? Christian world says sin. Bible says temptation. The Christian world says that if we have these pulls toward appetite and passion, why that contaminates us and we are sinners in the sight of God. The Bible says that's temptation to sin. A tendency to sin is a likelihood or a pushing to sin. It remains to be chosen to become sin. So that's why we spent the time. Yes, Jesus can take all of this ugly package, and I agree it is ugly, the package of heredity, and it can influence him tremendously growing up as a child to an adult. And he has to decide if he'll turn those tendencies into character choices. He has to make that decision. That's what will decide. I'll let you read the rest of the paragraphs on this page. There are some powerful ones here about fallen, sinful nature. I'll let you read them on your own. Turn to page 3. Second paragraph on page 3 is the little book in Heavenly Places, Morning Watch book, the last sentence in the second paragraph. Though he had all the strength of passion of humanity, never did he yield to temptation to do one single act which was not pure and elevating and ennobling. How much strength of passion? All of it. Everything that I've got pulling at me, he had pulling at him. Last paragraph on this page. In our own strength, it is impossible for us to deny the clamors of our fallen nature. Would you agree? And would you agree that our fallen nature clamors at us? Not just comes knocking at our door, but comes clamoring. Through this channel, Satan will bring temptation upon us. Christ knew that the enemy would come to every human being to take advantage of hereditary weakness. Notice three things are equal to each other. The clamors of a fallen nature means temptation, means hereditary weakness. None of those means sin. In the next sentence, and by passing over the ground which man must travel, our Lord has prepared the way for us to overcome. There is the good news. What ground did he travel over? The clamors of a fallen nature. Same ones you and I have to fight against. And they pull at him, and they pull at us. And he passed over that ground. And again, the question that we can ask to our friends is, do you know my friend Jesus? Do you know the one who's battling the, who battled the same feelings you're going through right now? Let's go talk to him about those feelings. He can help you with them. He knows the answer because he has overcome those feelings in his own life. That's the Jesus that we need to tell people about. I found a neat statement that is not in your outline. The human will of Christ would not have led him to the wilderness of temptation to fast and to be tempted of the devil. Did you know that? His human will, the Lord said, go out there, 40 days. And Jesus' human will said, I don't want to. 40 days of fasting and then to fight the devil off? No, thank you. It, his human will, 
would not have led him to endure humiliation, scorn, reproach, suffering, and death. His human nature shrank from all these things as decidedly as ours shrinks from them. Did you know that about your Jesus? He didn't want to go through the experiences that he was supposed to go through as the Messiah. When that 12-year-old boy thought about what that meant, and he began to realize the attacks that would come on him, he had, didn't want to go through it. He didn't want to participate. He knew what it would cost. What did Christ live to do? It was the will of his heavenly Father. What did we read earlier? He said, I come not to do my own will, but the will of my Father. If Jesus had followed his own will, he would have sinned. That's what we don't realize. If Jesus had followed his own logic, his own reason, his own thinking abilities, and his own desires, he would have sinned because he wouldn't have gone to the wilderness. He would have walked the other way if he would have followed his own feelings in the matter. That's what we don't know sometimes about our Jesus. Jesus had to deny his own logic and his own feelings and trust implicitly in his Father and do exactly what his Father told him to do even when he didn't know what the outcome would be. That's righteousness by faith, by the way. That's righteousness by faith. Doing what God says, no matter what our own will tells us or our own feelings. Submitting to God, not our own judgment. That's righteousness by faith. That's accepting God's way. And that's the gospel. And that's the way of salvation. So that is a very... And by the way, I found this statement. By, if you want the reference for that, it's Signs of the Times, October 29, 1894. I found this about Paul. Paul's sanctification was a constant conflict with self. His will and his desires every day conflicted with duty and the will of God. Instead of following inclination, he did the will of God, however unpleasant and crucifying to his nature. There's righteousness by faith. Every day a battle with self. Every day denying self to do God's will. Testimonies, volume 4, page 299. Well, that is a short summary of why I believe that Jesus took a fall in nature and why it's critically important, not just an academic debate. Now go back to your outline. There is one area that we haven't covered yet. It's section B. It says, no sinful propensities. Ah, the word propensity. You've heard that one before, haven't you? This is the big word to destroy everything I've said in the last 15 minutes. Jesus didn't have our propensities. It's not a Bible word. It doesn't occur in the Bible. It is a spirit of prophecy word. And I'll take you directly to the statement which has caused all the stir in the last 50 years. Page 4. This is the statement. And you can read it for yourself. It is a statement that was not published by Ellen White in any of her books at all. She had written this as a personal letter to a minister who was having a problem. It was hidden away in the vaults. She never uh, suggested that it should be published. It was never published by any of the compilers of her books. It was found by a researcher in the vaults and then incorporated into Bible commentary notes. Second paragraph on page 4. Be careful, exceedingly careful, as to how you dwell upon the human nature of Christ. Do not set him before the people as a man with the propensities of sin. He is the second Adam. There's the statement in one short paragraph. There's more, but that's the heart of it. Do not set him before the people 
as a man with the propensities of sin. What was this man teaching that Ellen White found it so important to reprove him for? First of all, we don't know. We have no sermons by him, no records. We're guessing only by what Ellen White wrote to him. It's a bit like being a detective trying to follow clues. That's a little dangerous to build doctrines on. So we don't know what the man was teaching. What could he have meant? Ellen White uses the word propensity in three different ways. That's part of what is confusing. Let me outline them briefly. Do you enjoy good food? Do you find it a struggle to come to the dinner table? <laughs> Isn't it neat that one of the things that is necessary for survival, God made one of the most enjoyable things we do? God created that within us. That's a holy propensity. That's one way the word is used. Holy propensities. Well, did things stay the same as that when Adam sinned and fell? Did they remain holy? Or did something happen to those, those propensities? All of a sudden, they got perverted and twisted, didn't they? I don't know when it happened, but it had to happen like this somewhere back in those early, early prehistoric days. Someone took a look through the woods. Hey, what's that running through the woods over there? Let's kill him and eat him. He might taste good. And it all started from there. <laughs> it did. Someone had to try it, and then they liked it. It didn't stop there, by the way. Have you noticed that? Hey, what's that hiding under the rock by the seashore? Let's pull him out, too. He might taste good. And it goes on and on and on. That's called a fallen or perverted propensity. Number two. And then there's a third meaning of the word. Some of you enjoy fellowship dinners. I know my son does. Something is special about fellowship dinners that is not regular at the table at home. Do you have that many dishes to choose from at home? Or do you get one dish, take it or leave it? That's it for tonight. Even in the cafeteria, it's not quite that way, is it? Like at fellowship dinner time. Those varieties of foods that our loving cooks have spent so much time laboring over. And we pass down that long row and can pick and choose to our heart's content. And most of it's pretty good. And we can ignore what doesn't look good. And even it gets so far as this. There is a sweet old lady in the church who makes the best, and write it in what you want that you have ever tasted. It is better than anything that you ever get at home. You never see anything like that other than fellowship dinner time, maybe once a month in your church. It's the only time it shows up. Otherwise, it's out of your life. It's out of your existence. Sometimes people even call sister so-and-so to see if she's going to be there before they decide if they're going to come. <laughs> now, when you pass down that line and you spot the dish, there it is. When you go past the line and you wait your turn, do you take just enough of that dish for survival till supper time? Just enough to get you to supper and no more. Or do you have something else in the back of your mind? I'm not going to see that for another month or maybe two months. <laughs> A little extra for the, for the lean months ahead. And where did that come from? Was that inherited? No. 
You tried it sometime in your past history and you decided it was the best thing ever placed on this good earth. And it became a habit. You wanted it again. It doesn't take much to make a habit, you know. And that became a habit developed by choice. Definition number three. A habit developed by choice. Ellen White has a couple comments on this. It's not in your outline. She said... um, we, uh, she said, the grace of God works in us to deny old inclinations, to overcome powerful propensities, and to form new habits. See the parallel there? Old, powerful propensities, habits, and to form new habits. Christ Object Lessons 354. She even says, we need not retain one sinful propensity. We need not retain one sinful propensity. That's Bible Commentary 7, 943. How long do you have to keep your fallen nature? Till Jesus comes. Can you get rid of all of your fallen propensities now? She says yes. So propensity is different than nature. It's not the same. It's not what is inherited. You keep what you, what you're inher- what you inherit. You can get rid of what you develop. All right? So if you can get rid of all of the fallen of the sinful propensities... It can't mean what is inherited. It can't mean tendencies. Definition number three, a habit developed by choice. That's what I believe Ellen White means in this letter that we just read. I'll be very honest with you, I can't prove that. We don't know what the man was teaching. We're doing detective work here. And when you do that, you can't have absolute proof. Which one of those three meanings did Ellen White mean when she said, do not set him before the people as a man with the propensities of sin? No one, no one, and I mean no one, can make a final proof on that. We can only do some intelligent guessing. And my guess is that she meant the third meaning of the word, habits developed by choice. That's usually how she phrased it when she used evil propensities or propensities of sin. Usually she's talking about habits developed by choice. So I don't think this is the great turnaround statement that so many have made of it. Well, this proves that he had an exemption from heredity. I think that's been pushed a little bit too far. The evidence is not as strong as some people would like to make it. Uh, Some have said that this is the defining statement in the spirit of prophecy on the nature of Christ. You know what that would mean? That the defining statement in the Bible on the state of man in death is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. You take the hardest statement you have and you define your doctrine on it. That's not the way to do good Bible study. So I'm going to suggest this isn't quite as compelling as some people would like it to be. All right, back to the outline, first page. Reality of temptations. Do you know what Hebrews 4.15 says? Someone? Hebrews 4.15. Tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin he was really tempted i'll let you read the ellen white statements on your own so i want to summarize right here oh here is one that i want to share with you i forgot about it a missionary in africa his uh, congregation in africa was not doing so well in one particular area And he was concerned about it. So he decided to ask his congregation some questions. Do you believe that Jesus in his incarnation was tempted as we are? Oh, yes, they said. 
Was he tempted to lie, steal, break the Sabbath? Yes, of course. Was he tempted to break the seventh commandment? Then came the answer, firm and unmistakable, oh no, impossible. What's going on? I knew I had found the source of the problem, no savior. Their Christ was the popular one of the Christian theologians, exempt from genetic inheritance, especially on this point. And this logic has appealed to numerous Seventh-day Adventist writers in recent decades. If Christ took our fallen, sinful nature, how could he be sinless? And how could he be our sinless substitute? Wouldn't he himself need a Savior? A former editor of ministry wrote to me, You can never make me believe that Christ was ever tempted to break the Seventh Commandment. So it's not just people in Africa. I responded, then according to the message of Hebrews, we have no savior from that temptation. Our only hope is an ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. Do we have a savior from that temptation? Was he tempted in all points like as we are? To multitudes of sin-sick souls, this Christ brings no good news. He has not suffered being tempted as they are. He is not touched with the feeling of their weakness. He cannot help them when they are tempted, for he was not in all points tempted like as they are. All he can do is keep on pardoning their continued unavoidable sinning. Once again, do we know the real Christ? Do we know the Christ who was tempted? Now I want to summarize. The Christ that came to this earth did not come using his powers as deity. He did not come with his power as God. He laid that power aside. Instead, he came with our fallen heredity, the same heredity that you and I have. The difference comes at his birth and our birth. At our birth, born of two sinful parents, I immediately begin to develop sinful habits. At the new birth, the, I am forgiven, and the Lord begins to take these habits out of my life so I can have no sinful propensities remaining. Jesus Christ was born of the Holy Spirit, controlling his fallen heredity. Therefore, he did not develop any habits of sin. The difference between Christ is not heredity. It is not his powers of deity, which he had left behind. It is when the Holy Spirit took control of his life versus when the Holy Spirit takes control of my life. It is the same Holy Spirit. It is the same power. It is just a difference in time. That's all that, there, that it is. Jesus Christ does have the power of the Holy Spirit in control from his birth, and I have it from the new birth. When is God at what point is God interested in my life in terms of my relationship to him in heaven? After the new birth. After the new birth. Before that, I am out of Christ, and the question isn't even valid, am I saved or am I lost? I am lost. When I am born again, then the question is, are you truly a child of mine? And that's the same as the Holy Spirit controlling Jesus' fallen heredity. Now you see these last two points. They speak of victory through divine power and the possibilities for man. That will be our subject of the next meeting, so I'm going to finish up right now by taking you to page 5. We will now read one paragraph that will tell us everything we will ever need to know about how to be righteous and how to be saved. Okay? Now listen up carefully because if some of this has been a little hard to understand, if some of it has kind of, you know, missed connections here and it's kind of gone by you, listen carefully now because now the next paragraph is all you will ever need to remember from this meeting if you want to be saved.
Okay? It is one-third down of the, uh, page 5, Desire of Ages, 363, and every word is crucially important here. As one with us, a sharer in our needs and weaknesses, he was wholly dependent upon God, and in the secret place of prayer he sought divine strength, that he might go forth braced for duty and trial. As a man he supplicated the throne of God, till his humanity was charged with a heavenly current that would connect humanity with divinity. Through continual communion, he received life from God that he might impart life to the world. His experience is to be ours. Why have I presented this subject this afternoon? I've been leading up to this paragraph all afternoon. If we can understand how Jesus lived day by day, we will understand everything we'll ever need to know about salvation. We don't need to go to any books. We don't want to get the latest book on, the, on righteousness by faith. If we can understand how Jesus lived. Notice the words again. Holy dependent. Supplicating the throne of God. That means pleading with God. Connecting with divinity. Continual communion. Those are crucially important words. Righteousness by faith is not golf cart religion. Golf carts charge up every evening and then run around the golf course all day long to come back to recharge for the next day. Isn't that the way we run our life? We charge our batteries here on Sabbath and we hope they stay charged for the whole week and then we come back for another charging. No, it's not that at all. It's trolley car religion. Aren't many left, but I think you know what I mean. Trolley cars don't have batteries and they don't have engines. They have a connecting arm to the power source. When they are connected, they run. When they are disconnected, they're stalled and they don't go anywhere. When we are connected, we are righteous. When we are disconnected, we are unrighteous. Simple statement. You see, we have no righteousness in us. We have no reservoir which can be filled with righteousness. We have no batteries which can be charged with righteousness. We have, connection, we have a connecting arm with our Heavenly Father called communion and dependence. When that arm is in the, in the hands of our Father, we are righteous. When we take it away to do our own thing, we are unrighteous. There is no righteousness in ourselves or in disobedience. Connection, disconnection, righteousness, unrighteousness. It is not a difficult equation. It is just hard for us to believe because we don't want to believe it. We want to say, disconnection, still a little righteous. I was righteous yesterday, maybe some little wear off onto today. Disconnection is always unrighteousness. And Jesus had to be connected continually to be righteous. These little arrows that you can't read say, trust and study and prayer. They bring down the Holy Spirit from heaven, which is the divine nature. What divine nature did Jesus use to, hold, to do his mighty works and to overcome sin? Not his deity as Yahweh, but the Holy Spirit dwelling within him. That was his divine nature, and that was God-likeness. Guess what? The same trust, trust and study and prayer bring the same Holy Spirit, the same divine nature, and the same God-likeness into our experience. Righteousness by faith. How did Jesus live? That's the gospel. That's what it's all about. Some of you may have read or heard about Jim Honberger. He wrote a book called Escape to God. 
Listen to what he said near the end of it. I purchased five books from five well-known and respected theologians. Adventists now. By the time I finished the last book, confusion unlike any I had ever known settled upon me. It was clear that not one of the leading scholars agreed with the others. Folks, believe it or not, that's reality today in our beloved Seventh-day Adventist church. I knew in my heart of hearts that the gospel could not be as complicated as man had made it. The Christian life is not so much a matter of how much you know, even about the subject we've been talking about, or how active you are, but whether all your known choices are surrendered to the will of God. Yeah, we can simplify it right down to that level. Are all of our known choices, known, see, not what we don't know, are all of our known choices surrendered to the will of God? That's righteousness. Oh, some people, that's legalism. You're talking about works there and all kinds of things. Look at three paragraphs farther down, one sentence. Desire of Ages, page 130. Jesus gained the victory through submission and faith in God. That's righteousness. Submission. When God says something and you simply say, I accept. Even though you can't figure out why. Simple example. Does it take much submission to, to uh, uh, keep nine of the Ten Commandments? A little common sense will do just fine, won't it? Don't go around killing people and stealing people and taking what isn't theirs. All right. What about the Fourth Commandment? Can you figure that one out by common sense? Why seventh? Why rest on the seventh day? What's wrong with the third day? Looks good to me. Or why not a ten-day cycle? Looked very logical to people in Russia a while back. Why should it be seven days and why the seventh? Can you find a clue in the sky, in the stars, in the sun, in the moon? Not a clue. What is the only basis for keeping the seventh day Sabbath? Submission and faith in God. Not common sense, not reasoning abilities, but doing what God says even when you don't know why he did it. I don't know why God chose the seventh day. Do you? He liked it. <laughs> he liked it. He said, I'm going to work for six, and then I'm going to have a seventh. He could have done it any other way in the world. He chose to do it that way, and I say, well, I don't know why, but he's the one who made the manual, and he made me, and so I guess I, I, I'll trust him. He knows better than I do. That's submission, see? It's odd, isn't it, that the fourth commandment, the only one that requires real faith, is the one that people call legalism. Isn't that odd? But here we have submission and faith in God. When you can't figure out exactly why God said it, when logic doesn't give you the answer, but God says, this is what I want you to do, do we do it God's way or do we do it our way? Now, does it end with the Sabbath or does it possibly extend into lifestyle issues? how we live our lives on a daily basis, the kinds of things we do daily when God says, but our friends say, when God says, but the pastor says, what do we do then? Which way do we go? Submission or reasonableness? Which way do we go? Submission and faith in God. Ellen White said a neat thing is not in your outline. She says, we cannot overestimate the value of simple faith 
and unquestioning obedience. We cannot overestimate the value of simple faith and unquestioning obedience. And my friends, that is not legalism. That is not legalism. We are being cowed into a corner by those who say that anything we do is legalism. Cain and Abel. Cain brought fruit because he was a gardener. What was wrong with that? What was wrong with that? He brought the fruits of his own labor. Did God ask for the fruits of his own labor? God asked for a lamb. Not the best he could do, not what he could produce. Are we giving to God the best we can offer? Or are we giving him what he asks for? I'm afraid that sometimes we're giving him the fruits that Cain gave him. We come up in our minds with the best thing we can do. This is what we think should be done. We meet in committee. We even pray about it. And we say, this is our decision. This is what we're going to do for God. And he has said exactly the opposite over here of how to do it. That's not submission. That is defiance. And we can do it just as easily as Cain did it. That is righteousness by works. See? I will do something to please God. Righteousness by faith is... I will submit and do it God's way. Both, you do something, see? You do something in both ways. You bring to God what you think, or you bring to God what he says. You do something either way. One is legalism, and one is faith. Righteousness by faith. It's not too complicated. Simple faith and unquestioning obedience.